People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Terry Cole is a licensed psychotherapist and founder of Real Love Revolution and Boundary Bootcamp. For the past two decades, Terry has worked with a diverse group of clients that includes everyone from mothers to Fortune 500 CEOs. In her therapy practice and online courses, she has guided thousands of women from around the globe through the liberating process of becoming their own boundary boss. And now she has a new book out called Boundary Boss, the essential guide to talk true, be seen, and finally live free. And I have to tell you, it is amazing. Welcome to Health Gig, Terry. Why, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So we've done research on you. We've learned a lot about your fascinating life. So we want you to start by telling us your personal story because we think it's fascinating. I think that, you know, we do teach what we most need to learn. And so for me, part of what inspired this book, part of my life that did was I was young. I was the fourth daughter in a family with a dad who probably should have had some sons that probably would have been better for him. And so I felt like I had a lot to prove in my life, sort of my coming up. You know, I was like, I'm going to be more successful than any dumb son my father could have had to sort of prove something. But growing up in a family where it was valued to be a good girl, to be nice, to be kind, not that being nice and kind is wrong, but I didn't learn anything about boundaries. I was an overfunctioner, an overgiver, an overfeeler. And so there was a lot of pain in my young life. That was caused directly by not knowing anything about how to hold up my boundaries. So in my business life, I was in entertainment before I became a psychotherapist. And by that point in my life, I had already found therapy. I found that young. So when I was in college, I found therapy because for the first time in my life, I was feeling a little bit depressed my junior year of college, which I'd never really had that experience. I was like, wow, people live like this all the time. It would be terrible. So I went to see a therapist. And from that experience, I just stayed. You know, some people get into therapy and they're just like, three decades later, I'm still there. Well, that's me because it became this luxury and this pathway to creating a life that I wanted that I didn't have. So through the therapeutic process and through my initial career in entertainment, I really realized what a boundary disaster I was. Part of that process was that therapist that I started seeing in college basically confronted me about my drinking when I was a senior in college. And she just straight up said, what you're describing is alcoholic behavior. And if you don't go seek help with a 12-step program, I will terminate working with you. And I was like, damn, I didn't even know they were allowed to do that. Can she just like break up with me because I drink too much according to her? And I remember saying to her, you know, Bev, that means everyone in my life is an alcoholic. And she was like, well, I don't actually care because you're the only one who's my client. So they may be, that may be true. And so she inspired me to at least look into, first of all, to look in and be like, why so much numbing? What am I trying to avoid? But I also went to go to an AA meeting and I went to one in Syosset, New York, you know, always in a basement of a church, which is where I was. Keep in mind, it was the 80s ladies, so you can imagine what I looked like, like the biggest hair on the planet. And I am from New Jersey, so it's like just double how big the hair was. I had removable shoulder pads, the whole thing. And I figured I'd just go in and do what she told me to do. 
And I didn't know any protocols or what you do. So I, I walk in the door and I'm sitting right near the door thinking I might need to make a run for it. You know, smoking my Parliament 100s considerately, I thought, because P.S., young people, everybody smoked back then. And then this woman came over to me, very similarly shellacked, because I had on a crazy amount of makeup. It was popular <laughs> at the time. And she said, oh, are you new? And I was like, yeah, I am. And she's like, oh, what brought you here? And I said, actually, my therapist gave me an ultimatum. I don't know if that's a good reason to come, but that's what brought me here. And then just to be polite, I said, oh, what brought you here? And she said, I killed a six-year-old boy in a drunk driving accident. And that changed my life because I was so grateful that that wasn't me. And I was so incredibly well aware of how easily it could have been me. So I quit drinking my senior year of college. I just made a deal with the powers that be like, I got it. I understand that this is a gift, that that isn't a life sentence. That isn't my life sentence. Thank you. And I'm not going to waste my life. So it was a very emotional sort of time, but now I am eyes wide open in life. And this is when I really started doing a lot of therapeutic work on myself, realizing that I really have the disease to please a lot of external validation seeking, not wanting to let anyone down. So of course, ultimately you end up letting lots of people down when you do that. So that was the beginning of my realization that something was missing. And that same therapist helped me see how crucial it was to be someone who keeps your word in life. And if you are a boundary disaster, that is hard to do because you're so busy people-pleasing that it's impossible to keep your word. So from that point, I went into my career. I had a short career in the garment center, which I hated. And then I moved into entertainment as an agent. And I mean, I don't need to tell you ladies that that is not a hotbed of mental health. So I really got to see up close and personal where I needed more work on my boundaries and how important it was to do that. And in that career, I got to a point where it was undeniable that I was done with the career because I had become too healthy to stay in this. It was really kind of a toxic swamp to a degree because in the end of my career, I was negotiating contracts for supermodels and celebrities. So it was a very particular part of the entertainment world that was particularly unhealthy in my opinion. And I kept trying to change it, but I mean, it was too hard to change where I would say, I don't think that we should call the models girls. They're grown women. Can we try to, everyone was like, oh God, with this one, like who, who needs this person's complaints, you know? And from, you know, that point, I just knew that what I cared most about was getting my clients into eating disorder clinics, rehabs, therapy. I was so much more interested in their mental health than I was that Pantene dealer, that big movie deal. I should have been psyched that I was negotiating. I just didn't care about that. So I knew it was time to leave. And so much to my father's chagrin, I decided I would go back to school. And I applied to one grad school because I only wanted to go to NYU. And yeah, I had some nerve since I went to a really crappy undergraduate school and it's not like I was a, <laughs> a rocket scientist, but I just thought like, I'm not moving to Omaha, right? Like I'm already in my late twenties. My whole life is established here. And I got in somehow. And then I just knew it. The second I started taking abnormal psych, I was like, oh yeah, this is my place. I love <laughs> this so much. So that's how I got to becoming a therapist. 
Wow. And so ever since then, you've been a therapist and you've been treating people in the entertainment business in that same place that you kind of grew up in, in their 20s? Yes. It really became like a niche market because I really understood. And really, I've actually become an expert on fame and what happens to people and how different it is. If you've never been around highly visible people, because in the 90s, supermodels were like the whole thing. Remember the George Michael? I mean, this was what everybody wanted. And it was a very popular time. And seeing that up close and personal, and then, you know, I'd already was dealing with celebrities. So I sort of got very interested in the psychology of fame and what happens when you don't have emotional privacy and when everyone in the world is like, shut up, your life is amazing. Like, what are you complaining about? You know, you can't complain. I mean, to your therapist, you can, but to other people, you can't, because people think fame is amazing. You have everything. You have all the money in the world. Like, what are you complaining about? And yet there are many other ramifications for being that visible, especially in the wake of the stalkerazzi and, you know, the way the industry has changed. So that was sort of where I went. But what I noticed within my practice, no matter who I was dealing with, it was almost all women very high-functioning women, or my sort of niche market, my clientele, that no matter what presenting problem people came in with, whether it was not being paid the same as someone else in a movie, whether it was difficulties in their love life, family of origin, you know, being a mess, I could connect the dots backwards all to this lack of this skill set of being able to really know what your preferences, desires, needs, and deal breakers are. And then being able to communicate those things in your personal and professional relationships. And I was like, wow, this is an epidemic. Nobody knows what a boundary is or how to do it. And I started teaching my clients, of course, and that was almost 25 years ago. So having boundaries, having strong boundaries make you more prepared for fame, but not just fame, but life in general. But did you find that people who had strong boundaries could handle the fame better? I wouldn't categorize boundaries as strong or weak. I would say like functional or dysfunctional. They're ordered, like they're in place or they're disordered. Because a lot of times you can look like you have quote unquote strong boundaries, but really you're like a boundary bully, right? And that is a disordered boundary style as well. So I'm always careful to say, you know, boundaries that are effective or ineffective. I found that the healthiest people were the people who managed fame the best, meaning they had a good sense of themselves. They had good self-esteem. And now, of course, that kind of an industry draws people a lot of times. Just like, you know, you hear like comedians, they're all like, we all have like horrible childhoods. That, that's why we do what we do. I think with acting and modeling as well, sometimes there was a lack of attention in childhood or you have you know, a lot of kids and you know, the middle child was like, I want to stand out and get my own. That's sometimes, I mean, not always, it's just like any industry. But I found that the, especially with the models, the ones that came from the most functional backgrounds had the most accurate view of the experience. They were aware that it would end. And so those were the ones who created clothing lines and home good lines and production companies and things that they were like, you know, if this is based on my face, like it's not going to stay like this forever, no matter what I do. <laughs> so they were planning rather than needing it to be about filling this hole within themselves. 
So in your book, you identify personal boundaries in different categories. Can you talk about that? So the types of boundaries that we have, you do have, let's say your physical boundaries, let's think about what that is. It's like your body, right? That's one of your biggest boundaries. And that's all about like, how close do you want people to be to you? How much personal space do you need? Do you want? So that's one thing. You also have your space around you. So that is your home, how you like it, your car. So let's say violations physically would be if somebody grabs you without your consent. And it could even be somebody barging into the bathroom while you're in the shower without knocking. So those are sort of violations there. If you're someone who keeps your car very clean and your sister is not and she leaves crap in your car, that would be kind of a physical boundary violation. We have emotional boundaries, which is knowing how you feel, being able to hold on to your own feelings, even if you're talking to someone or someone goes, well, I don't know why you shouldn't feel that way. That's dumb. You being like, no, I actually have a right to how I feel. But emotional boundaries are really important, especially with women, because it means that we know what is on our side of the street, as I like to say, and what is on someone else's side of the street. So we don't take responsibility for the feelings, the actions, the choices of others. When you have good emotional boundaries, we're not susceptible for being guilted by other people's unhappiness when they're like, well, you did this. I feel like with women, there's a lot of difficulty with this. It also brings in codependency. Most of us feel overly responsible for others, right? Yes. And it's just sort of, even if they're not famous, it seems that those are the feelings that I think we all share, especially on the emotional boundaries. I think you're right. Indeed. We have mental boundaries, which is your opinions, your thoughts. Like, can you hold on to what you think without freaking out that someone else doesn't agree if you have good mental boundaries, you can accept someone's no. You can say no without like writing a dissertation on why or feeling like you have to like convince them like a doctoral paper on why you're not going to that party. Overly convincing, no, that means those boundaries are disordered. But it's also accepting another person's no. And I find that in my practice and in my life experience, everything would be personal. Before I did my whole journey in my own therapy, everything felt personal. I remember my therapist saying to me once I was, my college boyfriend was, I don't know, complaining about the service at a diner or something like ridiculous. And I was like, why are you being so judgmental? I mean, maybe she's having a bad day. Like, <laughs> and then my therapist was like, why are you taking him being annoyed that the service was slow? <laughs> like it's some bad thing about you. I don't get it. And that's because my boundaries were so porous. So everything was coming in and seemed to be about me. The other boundary that we want to talk about are material boundaries, which is like money, let's say, or how you relate to your things. So do you lend money? I'm going to say don't. I don't care who it is. Just don't do it. Just from a therapeutic point of view, I promise you, it's going bad at some point. It's just going to be bad. Do you lend your things? Do you like to share food on your plate? You know, some people, like I'm a big food sharer. I want to eat all the plates. I want everything. And I have a friend who's like, I don't like to share. I'm like, oh yeah, my mom didn't like to share. Did that bug you though, a little? Well, she was very firm about it. She would say, I, no, I, no, this is my, I ordered this. You can order it if you want to. She's just a boundary boss when it comes to food, right on mom. <laughs> oh, and sexual boundaries, right? Sexual boundaries, really, they're sort of under the umbrella of physical boundaries, but that's really all about how you're sexual 
what is okay with you, how someone is touching you, where, when, what do you like? And with sexual boundaries, it's not just about no. You know, so much of the time, the myths about boundaries is that people feel like they're all about keeping people out. I'm, you do not come here, right? It's no, no, or it's having confrontations or being difficult or fighting with people, rejecting people. It's not true though. When you are a boundary boss, your no is authentic and your yes is authentic and can be believed. Because when you are a boundary disaster, People are always like, I don't know, she might have said yes, I'm worried that she really doesn't want to do it because I know she doesn't like to say no. You're not like that trustworthy, even if your motivation is like, I just want to be nice or I don't want them to think I'm being mean or I don't want them to think I'm being selfish. But what ends up happening is that people know, they intuit that literally you kind of can't be trusted. They can't count on you to tell the truth, right? right? The subtitle of the book. The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. And you both know right now, think, who in your life really talks true? The people that you go, they're solid. I know if they say yes, it is a yes. If they say no, it's a no. I have a girlfriend who I invited. I actually put this story in the book. I invited to come with me to something I was doing in Guatemala. And she right back, right away wrote, nah, I hate Guatemala. You know, I hate hot weather. Have a good time. And she is a friend. Elizabeth Dialto is her name. And she's someone who I trust. I have a lot of people in my life, though, at this point who talk true, but no waste of time. I don't have all this bandwidth of going back and forth and being like, but I want to make sure you're okay with, and I want to explain why I don't like <laughs> yeah. the sun. And I don't <laughs> care. You don't want to go. I know you're still a yes to me right? You're not a no to me because you don't like Guatemala. Like I'm aware that they're not the same. (laughs) So what happens when we don't set healthy boundaries? What are the pitfalls and the disasters that happen? Well, part of it is that I find that with my female clients, so much of the time, there's a need to please, having the disease to please, as Harriet Breaker coined that phrase a long time ago, I think in the early 2000s, we are overgiving, overfunctioning, not talking true, especially if we're mad or upset about something. So those feelings don't just go away just because they're inconvenient. If we don't know how to manage our anger or our disappointment or express it, then it just goes underground. It will still be there. And then you'll find yourself potentially acting those feelings out in, let's say, passive aggressive behavior. You know, have you ever gotten a text from someone, or I used to be the queen of sending things that were, okay, well, you're not at the place we were supposed to meet. And the person's like, oh, okay, sorry. You know, I'm running 15 minutes late. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I took an Uber to get here on time. No problem, smiley face. <laughs> so the passive aggressive smiley, I always think is kind of funny where you're like, but it's fine. Smiley face, but you're not smiling actually inside. You're mad. Rather than just saying, okay, well, that's annoying. Because if you had told me 30 minutes ago, then I would have walked because I had time. I would have saved money on an Uber. I mean, it's not like, you know, pay me for the Uber. It's considerate, be considerate of my time. Those are the very simple words to a degree that we can say and we can learn to say, but we have to unlearn all of this other crap first. So when you said, what are the pitfalls? The real motivating factor of wanting to become a boundary boss is that when we're not, eventually you just end up a bitter martyr. Like you end up 
just feeling so underappreciated by everybody. And then if someone doesn't take your advice when you're giving them instant advice they didn't even ask for because you're trying to fix everything, which is another thing with disordered boundaries, we're all like, I know, I called my friend. I'm sending you some listings that I found on Google. It's amazing. I put a book in the mail to you. I ordered it today. Like, oh my God, stop. Here's the thing. Nobody can be grateful enough when we're giving from a place of need or fear because we're not giving from freedom, like equanimity, actually, or actual love, even if we're being loving. So it doesn't mean it's all corrupted. But you really have to think about, am I giving of free will because I want to? Or am I giving because I'm afraid to be rejected? Because I don't want someone to be mad? Because I'm really conflict averse and I just can't deal? Like it's going to be a whole freaking thing that I just don't want to, or I don't know how to handle, right? I just don't know how to do it. When we do that enough, this is a cumulative experience where in the beginning, because I found that in my 20s, I felt like I was rocking it. I was overgiving left and right. And I didn't feel that I was bitter, let's say. But then it started catching up in my late 20s, which is really when the boundary stuff, I started going deep with my therapist, going into the basement, as I call it, right? Literally down the steps into the basement of your unconscious, because there's all this information about why we relate to boundaries the way that we do that is already there. It's like a paradigm, you know, downloaded boundary blueprint, I call it, of what did we see? What did we witness? What is the culture that we come from? What is acceptable? What did we learn from our parental impactors, I'll call them, because we didn't all necessarily have a mother and a father or whatever, but we had adults in our life. And what those adults did and the way that they related. So let's say one of the adult impactors in your life could be a mother figure, had the disease to please. If they were always overgiving, but you knew because you lived in that house with that maternal impactor that she felt taken advantage of by people. She would be guilting people or guilting you or guilting the family about after everything I do for you, even if they don't say that. But you sense, you feel, kids are like these little sponges. But then you learn, oh, women, if you're raised as a woman, and overgiving, they literally go together. Imagine that they're woven together somewhere in your unconscious mind. So that's the way you think you're supposed to be. Think about society. You know, what is the highest virtue that we could like strive for when we were younger? To be nice to have people think that we were nice, even though I also wanted people to know that I was smart. But that wasn't something that was important to most other people. It was within my family, thankfully, but it wasn't out there in the world. It was about what you looked like and if you were nice. She'll give anyone the shirt off her back. Uh, why is she doing that? She's going to be cold. And not everyone deserves her shirt. So you talk about healthy boundaries. But you also talk about boundaries can be too porous or they can be too rigid. Can you talk about that? I actually created a boundary quiz that anyone can take. It's up. It's just boundaryquiz.com. And I've broken it down into different styles of boundaries. Like when we're out of balance, how does this boundary style express itself? It's only 13 questions. They're mostly circumstantial. Like if you're at dinner and you stopped drinking a year ago, and you're with your friends, and the bill is huge, and the, your friends are big drinkers, and they want to split it evenly. But your food was 20 bucks, and the booze bill is 700 or whatever. You know, how do you handle that? Do you 
not say anything because you're like, I don't want them to think I'm petty or cheap or whatever. Are you hurt that they don't remember you don't drink? Are you mad that they want you to pay for their tequila? Like the response is one thing, but what you actually do really determines the boundary style. So let's just get the three main ones and then we'll talk a little bit more about the styles themselves. So they could be too porous, which could mean that you maybe share personal information with people too soon, like Insta friends or Insta intimacy, because I've seen this quite a bit in my practice, where people would meet, even if they were dating, and they would you know, spill their whole entire life to someone that they really don't know. And that is a representation of porous boundaries, right? Because intimacy is not instant, obviously, and it takes time. So that is a porous emotional boundary if you're sharing too much about yourself. If you're overgiving, if it's hard to say no, potentially you might allow disrespectful or abusive behavior, and you might do things you really don't want to do. You might be able to be pressured into being physical before you want to, because it's just so hard to say no. So that's porous boundaries, overgiving, lending money, potentially all of those things. Boundaries that are too rigid are people who are, it's almost like imagine that there's a wall around you that's way, way, way high if they're too rigid. So what would that look like? That would look like keeping to yourself more. That would look like not being open to someone else's opinion, really thinking like my way or the highway a little bit with the rigid boundaries. Could be that you're aggressive in some way, that it's about you're not really thinking about other people as much, but really thinking about jamming your own agenda through so you can be a little bit insensitive if your boundaries are very rigid. And then the third category of boundaries, healthy boundaries, which means you know what you think. You also are open to what other people think. You say no when you mean no. You can say yes when you mean yes. You're secure in yourself, which is really what it's all about. And the journey that we take in Boundary Boss, it all begins and ends with you. So it's not about other people. And I think that the shift, I'm hoping that I'm shifting the lens with this book, that we're looking at boundaries through the lens of ourselves. How do we react or respond? How can we create space between what would be a reaction, like an ingrained behavior, like I came up with this thing called auto-accommodating, where with so many of the women in my practice and myself, this isn't even like just other people. The reason I came up with auto-accommodating is this was before COVID. And I was getting my hair color done in the city and it was an extremely busy salon. And I'm sitting at the sink, I'm doing like the thing where you got to sit there for like 10 minutes with something on your hair. And I'm looking and I'm seeing that there's a bit of a wait for the sink and maybe I should not be at the sink and maybe I should see if they want me to move from the sink. So I say to the assistant, hey, I'm happy to sit wherever, like if you need the sink. And what is so interesting is that her response, because she's probably not a boundary disaster. And she was like, uh, thanks. We got it. We're good. And I sat there for those 10 minutes and I was like, wow, it's unbelievable. You're literally writing a book about boundaries and (laughs) you're worried about the sink flow. You're literally taking responsibility for the sink flow at your hair salon. And I knew if I'm doing that still, now I was aware of it and then I wrote a whole thing about it. I did a video on it for my YouTube channel and for my, you know, my podcast. And it went viral. It had 130,000 downloads in less than a month because so many people were like, oh my God, I do this everywhere. I'm always trying to help the stranger. 
then, of course, you will always have people who are like, what's wrong with being nice? I'm like, dude, nothing's wrong with being nice. What's wrong with enjoying getting your hair done and not taking responsibility for crap that is not on your side of the street? Because here's the thing. It isn't about being nice or not being nice. It's about in that moment, that was a dysfunctional, mental or emotional, it's kind of together, boundary. Because instead of resting for a moment in my busy life, I was expending energy trying to problem solve some crap that was not my problem. And there's a cost to that. If there was no cost, it wouldn't be a big deal. But if we do this all the time, we have limited bandwidth as human beings. Why am I not thinking about my life? Why am I not just meditating for those 10 minutes? Why am I not restoring myself instead of worrying about some crap that no one asked me to worry about? My input wasn't really welcome. And P.S., not my problem. What about when you're practicing boundaries and you're all about your boundaries and you're going to say your truth and then you say it and then all hell breaks loose and then you just feel so bad for about a year? What does that say? Well, here's the thing. You're going to learn the skills to do it with ease and grace. And you're going to start small with low priority people. Like this is part of the whole plan. In the book, there is literally a step-by-step because we don't just pick the most important thing that's been bothering us for 14 (laughs) decades with the most important person in our life and grab a megaphone that's like, everybody, there's a new boundary boss in town. (laughs) me. (laughs) We need to talk, everybody. We need to get in line. We're not doing that. Even though when you first start realizing this, I've seen this over and over again, the anxiety that can be provoked from the thought of needing to have a boundary request conversation makes us just want to be like, I'm just going to let him know that everything is changing. So I'm just going to text him right now. And I'm like, do not lead with that because the most impactful changes you're going to make are going to be baby steps where we just start very slowly but surely changing our boundary dances in our relationships. Nobody needs a warning. Like we don't have to tell people. You can have a conversation, but I wouldn't pre-tell the conversation. I would do it when you're not mad, right? We don't wait until we're so pissed that we're a volcano where you say things that you can't take back. And even when you do it right, and even if you do it quote unquote perfectly, let's say you use the perfect magic words, which there are none, but let's just say there were. There will still be people who are like, I cannot believe how ungrateful you are. I cannot believe how mean you're being right now. I cannot believe you because Dr. Harriet Lerner would say that that is them doing what's called the change back move because they are scared if you change. We're changing the dance. The people in our life are going to feel threatened for a moment. When you stay lovingly attached to someone as you change the dance, They will stop doing those change back moves. Your new normal will emerge, but you have to be willing to be uncomfortable and to realize you're not that friggin' fragile. None of us are that fragile and that it's the child within us. And here's the thing. Can we just talk about child within work for one sec? Before I was a therapist, I was like, this is such bullcrap. I don't even get it. Please stop. Like, 
I really wanted to be into it. I didn't know much about it, but when anyone said it, it just sounded so precious and so corny and weird, and I just didn't like it. Then I became a therapist, and I was like, oh my God, John Bradshaw is a genius, and this is so real and so true, and every one of my clients needed this work, and I needed this work. So I incorporated in the book, because what's happening when, let's say, have you ever had this experience where you interact with someone and you have no idea why you react, you have this big reaction to them inside and you're kind of like, what the hell with this, you know, Bob in accounting? Like, I don't even know this dude. Like, why do I want to kill Bob in accounting? And so much of the time we're having, you know, what Freud would call like a transference experience. So when I was in grad school, keep in mind how much therapy I had up to that point. So you guys know, like I was pretty therapized, 10 years at least. And so I had this boss who I was like, I just friggin' hated this guy for no, no reason. It was a drug treatment clinic. He was a very famous doctor who had written a book. This is when cocaine addiction was very popular. And he'd written a book and I would go in every week to my, my therapist and be like, this guy is just, he's so cold. He's so judgmental. He's just a jerk. I just can't stand him. When I see him, I just jump into the bathroom to avoid him. When he's in a meeting, I never talk. This is what I'm saying to my therapist. She was like, Tara, can you describe him? And I was like, sure. I was like, you know the kind. He's like, well, he's tall, good looking, he has a dimple. He's like a Brooks Brothers suit wearing Wall Street Journal reading, martini drinking, golfing kind of on the weekends. Guy, you know that guy. She was like, Tara. Who else would that describe to a T? It was like, oh my God, my father. Like, literally, my father. And she was like, Tara, you're having a transference to your boss. I was like, oh my God. But she said something that was so profound after that. She said, Tara, what's happening is this. You see your boss. You were afraid of your father growing up. You turn into your 10-year-old self. He turns into your father. You clam up and run away just like you did when you were a child. And there's nothing wrong with you. That's your response. It's an actual thing that happens. We're bringing it now right from the basement to the main part of the house, you know, your conscious mind, so that you know, you can like talk yourself out of that. You can say, oh, Dr. Washington's not my father. I'm not 10. And the most important part of what she said was, don't you want a job at this place when you graduate? How will he ever know how smart you are? What a good clinician you've become. If every time you see him, you hide in the ladies' room, like he's never going to know. So we're talking about real damage that can happen in your grown-up life from unresolved experiences in an earlier part of your life. So in the book, I teach you how to handle this and how to identify when it's happening and what's happening and then how to kind of talk yourself out of it. So ready? Let's go. So if you find yourself in that situation, you could even bring to mind a situation if you're like, wow, I had the weirdest reaction to this person. So you think about that person and you say, who does this person remind me of? Could be physical, could be energetic, could be the way they talk, what their hands look like. It doesn't have to be they remind you physically, but it could be. Where have I felt like this before? And why is this behavioral dynamic, the way I'm interacting and reacting to them, why is that familiar to me? And then I added this last one, which is metaphorically, when you're in that interaction, who might you become? I became my 10-year-old self, and who might the other person become? That boss became my father. When we can see where we go, oh my God, I identified the transference. I was having that feeling because that person scared me the same way my father did. I became my 10-year-old self. For me, all I needed to stop that behavior 
was that realization. It rang so true. It resonated so hardcore inside of me. I was able to just reassure myself anytime I needed to interact with my boss that he wasn't my dad and I wasn't him. And I was able to go in and I did actually get a job at that place after I graduated, which was fine. But these are the types of things that create disordered boundaries. But it's tricky because nobody teaches us about this. Like I've, I've really worked to take these sort of heady theoretical things and make them accessible. How can they be actionable? It doesn't matter if you understand it. What you need to know is how do I apply it to my life so that I can lessen my own suffering and increase my own joy, productivity, whatever it is you want to increase? I have a question about that, the transference. Let's say you have this visceral reaction to somebody, you know, some kind of reaction to somebody. Can the transference be yourself? some part of yourself that you don't like. So if I see someone doing something like eating snacks all the time and it irritates me, but then I'm like, hmm, I do that too. That is very similar, but it's a different phenomenon. But what is interesting about you saying it is that what you are identifying is that when something is going on, like something's getting on our nerves or bugging us, there's always a parallel process going on in life. Whether you're annoyed or not, there's always a parallel process going on. It's not just what we're experiencing now, because we bring our life of experience, generations before us, we bring. So there's other things going on. In the rooms, right in 12 step speak, you know, they say, if you spot it, you got it, which is what you're describing, where you're like, oh, that person. And then you're like, oops, that's also about shadow work, because many of us have been raised to, you know, really want to amplify our good qualities and really deny or disavow our less than amazing qualities, but we really do see it in others. And it's so annoying. So my mother always says, you know, because she's like me, like, you know, a bossy know-it-all. So she was like, you know, that what's so-and-so at the church really bothers me because she's so bossy. And she's like, how can she know everything when I know everything? Like kidding. <laughs> like she knows it's, it's her own shadow, but I'm like, yeah, ma. Exactly. But those are things to look out for, though. And this is part of the process of becoming the observer without judgment of ourselves, our interactions. And so much of the book is about self care. I'm giving you meditations, I'm giving you meditation techniques. Because if we don't create enough internal space, then we just go with the reaction and it's exhausting. We don't question it. The key, though, is to do it without judgment, because what meeting ourselves with compassion at every place, at every turn, that we must have the compassion for ourselves, that we have for others, where with boundaries, it's like a language. You would never expect to be fluent in a foreign language because you prayed hard enough. You would never think like, I'll be strong enough one day to be fluent in Mandarin or to be fluent in Russian or to be fluent in Spanish. You would know this is not about strong or weak. I need a teacher. I need slow little baby steps. I need to learn a little and then a little more. And then I need to have a little assignment that helps me do it in the world. So I want you to think about becoming a boundary boss as that process. That's so important because I think there's observer hell and there's awareness hell where you could just be, oh, I just saw that in me again. Oh my God, there I am. I see this. You're giving us a little, as you said, baby steps. So get off this little cycle. So I just saw it, take a breath and take a step this way. 
That's so helpful. And also know that there are scripts, like one full chapter towards the end of the book, an entire chapter is just scripts for every scenario. You literally left a cult or a very religious church and you bumped into those people in the supermarket. There's a script for that. Like, I'm not kidding. Intrusive questions. Why aren't you married? Why don't you have kids? Why don't you eat wheat? How about all of those? What do you say without punching Aunt Betty in the face, right? Because we probably don't want to do that. We love your book. And at the beginning of your book, there's the Boundary Boss Bill of Rights, which I took a picture of it and then I printed it off because it's all summed up right there. They're amazing. So it's the Boundary Boss Bill of Rights. You have the right to say no or yes to others without feeling guilty. You have the right to make mistakes, to course correct or change your mind. You have the right to negotiate for your preferences, desires, and needs. You have the right to express and honor all of your feelings, if you so choose. You have the right to voice your opinion, even if others disagree. You have the right to be treated with respect, consideration, and care. You have the right to determine who has the privilege of being in your life. You have the right to communicate your boundaries, limits, and deal breakers. You have the right to prioritize your self-care without feeling selfish. And you have the right to talk true, be seen, and live free. So great, Terry. Your work is incredible. And it's awesome to be bringing this discussion, I think, up where it needs to be discussed, particularly, as you say, for women, that we just somehow have a problem with boundaries, you know? So this is awesome. Yes, we recommend everyone buy Terry's book, Boundary Boss. It's just exciting to have you on our show today, Terry. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. And I have a gift for your listeners. So I think we should do boundaries and codependency. What do you think about that? That would be awesome. All right. So to get it, all you have to do is go to boundaryboss.me forward slash health gig is what it is. And they can buy the book at boundarybossbook.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.